Hello and welcome to Talk of Today, where we explore developments in science, technology and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. If you ask people, what do they want in life? Many will tell you they just want to be happy. But what does that actually mean? Moral philosophers have largely focused on ideas relating to the flourishing of sentient beings. And I'd say that it is safe to assume that a big part of what makes for a flourishing life is that the person living it is happy, or at least happy for a significant portion of it. So what actually makes us happy? What effects do the decisions we make have on our subjective well-being? How does money or parenthood affect our happiness? What effects do new technologies like smartphones and constant connectivity have on how happy we are? If happiness, subjective well-being, or flourishing is important, which I'm sure we'd all agree that it actually is, answering these questions has profound consequences for how we choose to organize our societies and the choices that we make. Joining us today to help shed some light on these questions, we have Kostadin Kushlev, an assistant professor in psychology at Georgetown University, where he leads the Digital Health and Happiness Lab, exploring questions of how digital technologies affect health and well-being. His previous work has covered things like the relationship between income and happiness, as well as that of parenthood and happiness as well. You can find show notes for this conversation on my website at samhbarton.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by sharing it on social media or by becoming a patron. For as little as $2 a month, you can help make this podcast possible. Head to samhbarton.com for more information or head directly to patreon.com slash samhbarton. If you'd like to keep up to date with new episodes and everything else I've got going on, um, you can subscribe to my newsletter through my website or follow me on social media at Sam H. Barton. And without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Kostinin Kushlev. So my name is uh, Kostinin Kushlev, and I am currently an assistant professor at uh, Georgetown University in the Department of Psychology, uh, where I focus on the areas of uh, social psychology and health psychology. And how did you come to get into this line of work? Like, what's been your career trajectory over the past uh, over the past few years? <laughs> Well, they often say that research is me-search, and I think that definitely applies in uh, my case. Now, I got my first iPhone, I think, in 2012, um, and I think it was the iPhone 4, so I resisted uh, the change for a few years. And, iPhone 4 you know, was a very good one. As soon as I got the... Yes. <laughs> that, I remember the iPhone 4. When that came out, that was a step above it. Sorry. <laughs> Continue. Yeah, that 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 finally convinced me. Um, and you know, in the months after I got the uh, my first smartphone, you know, I noticed a couple of things. First of all, uh, lots of daily tasks became a lot more convenient uh, and easy. Um, I mean, I was thinking recently how. Um, you know, I can't even remember how I actually did simple things that I do every day now, such as when I, you know, go to meet somebody in a new part of town. Um, you know, I don't plan where I'm going to have lunch after or how am I going to get back home. Uh, I just start, you know, going and find directions on my phone, all of these things. So it's really transformed how we do all these simple daily tasks. But the other thing I noticed um, is that it became 
more difficult for me to focus on uh, what I was doing. And I was doing my PhD at the time. So uh, sustained attention uh, is important uh, for writing your dissertation. Um, and so uh, with that, um, you know, I just became really interested in how all these notifications initially, but then more generally how just the presence of these, um, you know, of the internet in our pockets uh, at all times might be changing um, our um, attention and uh, in particular how it might be changing our attention in the context of social interactions. So it was your own experiences with technology and trying to get stuff done that really has prompted a lot of your, uh, your work. That's right. And if, you know, we have to look back at a particular moment when I decided that I'll be doing my dissertation specifically on the topic of smartphones uh, within the context of social interactions. Um, it, I was actually, I can remember the moment, uh, I was actually at a great uh, music festival in British Columbia called Bass Coast. It's kind of electronic music and you know, I was dancing and sort of uh, thinking in my head, I guess dancing helps me think. And it was just this very clear moment of when I was excited. That's something novel. Nobody's really studying this. Nobody's doing, um, you know, systematic, programmatic research on this topic. And so uh, kind of I found my calling that way. And I'm still Excuse doing that um, my friend calling. six or seven <laughs> years later. Yeah, that's uh, wonderful, wonderful. So when I was doing uh, research for this, the way, and you know, my girlfriend asked me, so you know, what, what, what are you talking about? What's the topic? I, I framed it as you are a behavioral scientist and you look into well-being and how different variables in our life uh, affect our well-being at, at the individual level, but you know, at, the, at the societal level. Would you, uh, would you, was that, is that a good way of characterizing your work? Yes. So if, yeah, so beyond uh, the specific research on technology and well-being, yes, I've looked at the effect, for example, of income on well-being, uh, progressive taxation on well-being. Um, now, a different side of that question that I've become um, more interested recently is uh, what are the consequences of having higher uh, well-being. So um, there is this exciting new research um, that's emerging that suggests that happier people tend to be healthier. Now, of course, healthy people also tend to be happier, but there's evidence that there is causal um, a causal effect of happiness on physical health. Um, it also seems to be associated with better citizenship, meaning that... Um, you know, you might be more involved at your workplace or more involved with, um, you know, various causes, helping society and that sort of thing. So um, basically, I'm interested in both the uh, antecedents of well-being, but also the consequences of well-being. So if we were, if we were trying to pitch um, happiness to some, you know, heartless uh, politicians who only want to maximize economic growth, we could actually say, well, actually having a population could be uh, vital in, in trying to promote uh, economic growth or, you know, to try and promote economic interests in your country. 
Exactly. Yes. So the research clearly suggests that uh, it is actually pays to invest in the well-being of the population um, because, yes, happier people are, uh, you know, they would work harder, for example. Uh, they would contribute more to society. Um, it is really a goal because, uh, you know, I, I think part of the bias here comes with thinking of happiness as goal in and of itself, which is true. I mean, it's, you know, generally good to be happy. But yes, if you are heartless, uh, you know, economist or something and just uh, worried about... Um, There's lots of economists with hearts uh, out there. I'm no, just, I'm being a bit... Yes, I'm being a bit and maximizing GDP, <laughs> then, you know, that is not of interest to you. But it turns out that happiness is not only goal in and of itself, but it's actually good for um, all these other outcomes that we value, including health, um, uh, productivity, and uh, general um, being a good citizen. So how do we measure happiness? And what's like, in a lot of your work is a lot of it's focused on happiness. And there's this term well-being, which is thrown around a lot as well. Um, what are the differences there? And how do we measure things like happiness and subjective well-being? Yeah, so I would say that, um, you know, subjective well-being and happiness could be used interchangeably. So one answer is that subjective well-being is just the more technical term for the more general concept of uh, happiness. And, you know, of course, subjective well-being has a specific definition, whereas happiness, you know, everybody can decide what happiness is. So that's why the literature often talks about subjective well-being rather than happiness uh, in general. Now, uh, so in terms of how we measure uh, subjective well-being, um, there's really three components that everybody seems to uh, agree on. And those three components are relative frequency of positive emotions. Um, so that includes things like joy, calm, you know, there's various types of positive emotions, both sort of an energy, uh, energetic um, positive emotions, but also, you know, relaxed, peaceful, and so forth. So low energy positive emotions. Um, and so that's uh, the first component. The second component is a relatively infrequent experience of negative emotions, you know, anger, sadness, and so forth. Now, it's important to uh, emphasize here that it's fine, it's normal uh, to have negative emotions. Uh, so nobody's talking here about creating a society of Pollyannas that, you know, never experience any negative emotions or, I don't know, doing some sort of affirmations, self-affirmations every night so that you suppress all anger and self-doubt and that sort of thing. Um, so we're not trying to suppress negative emotions. Um, we recognize them as normal part of human experience. But at the same time, obviously, if you're constantly sad or angry, then that's, you know, score lower on in terms of subjective well-being. Uh, so these are sort of the emotional or affective components of uh, well-being. Um, and there is more cognitive components of well-being. So that's more uh, questions about how you think about um, and uh, view your life 
uh, and your cells. Um, and um, the most common common uh, way to measure that is a questionnaire or a question about life satisfaction. Um, and um, so these components of well-being are related to each other, but they're also distinct from each other. And in fact, um, they do relate differently to some of the predictors of well-being, such as income, for example. Are there, out of the three uh, components, let's say, of, of subjective well-being, is there one that's more important than the others? Yes. So I would say, I mean, if I had to pick, um, I would say positive emotions um, is, um, you know, perhaps the most important one because it really, positive emotions is about, um, you know, and it's measured, it's asking how you feel on a day-to-day basis. So it's measuring essentially your happiness um, throughout your daily life rather than how you are thinking about your life. Now, for example, you could be you know, very successful, you could have a large house, a great car, uh, and so forth. So, you, you know, so when you ask about how satisfied you are with your life, you could say, oh, I'm pretty satisfied. I mean, you know, I have it pretty good. Uh, but then when I start measuring your emotion about how you feel in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, uh, it's possible that you don't actually experience a lot of positive emotions, even though you're satisfied with your life, because, you know, at five o'clock, you're stuck in terrible uh, traffic, um, you know, at 12 o'clock, your boss, uh, you know, isn't letting you go to lunch because there's a project you need to do and that sort of thing. Right. So, uh, so I'd say that's the most important if I had to pick one. And in fact, the research looking at the consequences of subjective well-being often focuses on positive emotions. So if you are experiencing regular positive emotions, uh, you tend to, you know, uh, in the long term, be healthier, for example, live longer and so forth. So does that mean that there's just like if you're high in neuroticism, you're just on average just going to be less of a happy person? Yeah, so right, like, neuroticism. If you don't mind, could you just intro, could you just um, just talk a little bit about the uh, the big five personality traits as well, just for some context? Sure. Sorry, so I just, neuroticism I just threw it is... Yeah, neuroticism is one of the five, um, big five personality traits. Um, and most of the other personality traits, uh, such as extroversion or agreeableness, tend to be positively related to measures of subjective well-being, um, whereas neuroticism tends to be negatively uh, related to subjective well-being. And neuroticism... You know, I mean, I'm not a personality psychologist, but generally it means the propensity to experience, um, um, you know, kind of stronger emotions, including um, negative emotions. Um, So, I mean, yeah, I guess on average, uh, I mean, first of all, it is true that some of us are just... I should say here, personality traits are largely genetically determined. So, you know, there are some environmental factors, but generally, um, you know, um, genes determine whether somebody is neurotic or not. So it is fair, actually, to say that some are uh, born with a little bit happier dispositions than others. Uh, But of course, um, you know, we are talking here about you know, small effects. So yes, subjective well-being has an effect on physical health, but it's not 
the one determining factor. So you could certainly be a neurotic person who is also pretty healthy. Uh, it's just a little less likely that you'll be mm-hmm. as healthy as somebody who is not as neurotic. But you know, it's not a one-to-one relationship. So you could have a neurotic person that's healthier um, and you know more involved in the community than somebody who is uh, low in neurotic. So let's say that I wished to track my own subjective well-being every single day. Uh, would I, how would I, what would I um, track? Like, would I ask myself to rate my happiness on a scale of one to 10 uh, once a day? Or what would be the, like the, the easiest way for, you know, just your average citizen who's interested in seeing their happiness across time? Uh, how, how, would, how would you recommend they go about that? Yeah, so the best uh, way, sort of the gold standard of measuring uh, emotions uh, is something called experience sampling or uh, ESM. Um, And essentially what that involves is that at usually random times of the day, um, you're sent uh, a message uh, with a questionnaire uh, uh, which asks you, how do you feel right now. Uh, And then now, uh, what uh, exactly is the scale? Yeah, I mean, frequently it's one to five, one to seven, uh, you know, standard scales. Um, And, you know, the scale could be something like, um, you know, one, not very happy, to seven, extremely happy. Um, Often it's a little bit more general than that. um, And it kind of assesses mood. So how do you feel right now? From uh, one, it would be anchored at bad, I feel bad, uh, to five, good. And the reason for that is that, again, happiness, so people have a lot of um, theories and uh, philosophies about what happiness means, uh, whereas good and bad are a little bit more uh, sort of uh, neutral in that respect. Um, And so, anyway, so the best way to measure it is uh, to... Um, you know, measure how people are feeling at particular moments uh, throughout their day. Uh, now, of course, that's the most involved way. Uh, and so the, you know, effects, the uh, findings that you read about, about, um, you know, who is the happiest nation and stuff like this from these national representative surveys, uh, most of them are based on a single question that measures uh, life satisfaction. So, how satisfied are you with your life? And that's what we're looking at rather than this, um, you know, um, multiple times a day for, you know, a week mm-hmm. type of measurement. So how, um, I understand that you've, so you've, you've taken this idea of, of this measure of subjective well-being, and you've, you've looked at how different variables and how different things in life can affect it. Um, let's begin with technology and smartphones. Uh, what's the relationship between smartphone usage and maybe how much we actually use it, uh, how, how much we actually use these technologies and uh, subjective well-being? Uh, so, I mean, a number of uh, researchers have uh, looked at that question and the answer tends to be contradicting. So some studies have found that, um, you know, Phone use uh, over time has been associated with increase in loneliness and depression, especially in young populations. A recent study um, by Shabilsky um, in Nature Human Behavior found no relationship between uh, mobile 
phone use and uh, happiness. And so um, my research really doesn't focus on this net effects question because in some ways, you know, the net effects question is, you know, breezing over the complexities of these devices. My perspective is that these devices have become so prevalent uh, because they are great, uh, very useful, convenient, make our lives better in a lot of ways. So they certainly have benefits for well-being, and some of my research shows that. Uh, but they also, by being so convenient and uh, easy and fun to use, uh, have sort of infiltrated our lives uh, and infiltrated other activities that are essential for human happiness, such as, you know, spending quality time with one's family, friends, uh, and so forth. Uh, and so it's these subtle costs that I've uh, focused on uh, exploring. And I've shown that uh, in many different social situations from, you know, parents spending time with their children to, um, you know, friends uh, spending time with each other. Uh, phones can have these subtle effects on well-being, uh, not necessarily ruining your dinner with your family, but just making you uh, perhaps uh, enjoy it a little less than uh, you might have um, otherwise. Okay. So just to make sure I've got this clear, it's not that smartphone usage makes us more sad or, you know, feel worse. It's just that because it's into, because we're using these phones in, uh, at, at times where we might be interacting with other people or doing other things, it's the loss of the potential happiness that we would have gotten from those interactions that is actually causing this, this change or this, this, uh, yeah, this change in subjective wellbeing. Exactly. So that's precisely the question that I've tried to provide evidence for. So uh, it's the opportunity cost. What is being lost um, by, you know, uh, looking down at your phone during a conversation, maybe even once? Uh, does that derail the conversation? How do you feel about your connection with others uh, at the end? Do you feel listened to when your partner um, you know, is on their phone while you're talking to them, um, uh, that sort of thing. Now, that's not to say that, um, you know, there isn't other research suggesting that there are more direct effects of um, these technologies on well-being. Now, most of the research in that area has focused on social media. And by social media, I really mean Facebook, because uh, the majority of the social media research is uh, focusing on uh, use of Facebook. Um, and, you know, there are some really interesting findings in that area. Uh, one distinction is the distinction between passive uh, and active use of social media. So uh, the research seems to suggest that when you go on Facebook and, you know, you post something and you interact with others, you uh, comment on others, post, that sort of thing. Well, that's actually associated with greater uh, happiness. Uh, but passive use, which means you're just scrolling through the feed, looking at what other people are doing, um, having, um, you know, great vacations uh, while you're working, for example, uh, that sort of use is associated with lower well-being, for example. So there are direct effects. Uh, but when um, part of my perspective is that to study smartphones, I mean, what does that mean, right? There's so many things you can do on, on the smartphone. So I'm not interested in 
the effects of each of those things, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or email. Uh, I'm more interested in the fact that whichever one of those things you're doing, you're missing out on other opportunities to um, you know, experience greater joy uh, in your life. And I should say here that I've focused on the context of social interactions here because if there is one uh, secret to happiness, I mean, sometimes as a well-being researcher, I get asked that, what's the secret to happiness? And um, my answer is, and the uh, research uh, suggests the answer is, you know, social interactions and social relationships, right? So all very happy people have one thing in common, uh, common and that is um, they have at least a couple, if not more, uh, close friends that they can confide in, or whether friends or relationships um, more generally. So um, if you want to be a very happy person, you need uh, those strong uh, um, relationships. And so that's the uh, context in which I'm studying the effects of smartphones, because if you're not paying attention to your friends when they're talking to you, uh, maybe you're not maximizing your well-being. So is it the strength of the connection with the person or is it also, or so yeah, is it the strength of the connection or is it the frequency or length of time at which you engage with uh, that, that person or, you know, that set of people? Um, well, it's I, all of those things. So, so there's, so first of all, yes, I mean, having a couple of really good, friends uh, in the literature they're called you know close confident the confidence uh, meaning that you know you need a few people that you can confide in meaning you know when things get bad do you have somebody to turn to to rely on for social support and so forth now that, that's essential but it's about that any kind of social interaction including with uh, you know your closest friends but also with you know co-workers uh, but it turns out the latest research suggests that even interacting with strangers complete strangers um, is actually associated with uh, feeling better. Now, a really interesting study uh, was done by Nick Epley and Juliana Schroeder on the uh, metro or subway in Chicago. Uh, now, they asked people, uh, commuters on the Chicago subway, uh, or randomly assigned them in one of two conditions. So they asked them to either try to spark a conversation with somebody uh, during their commute or to, you know, not talk to anybody as usual. Uh, and they asked actually people to predict how they would feel, how those interactions would go. And most people thought that it would be terrible. Nobody would want to talk to them. Uh, but in reality, virtually everybody uh, found a person that, that they could talk to. And they felt um, happier at the end of their commute. Now, making a commute happier, that's, uh, that says a lot. Um, so, yeah, so there's, um, there's all this research suggesting that social interactions in general, uh, it doesn't have to be with a friend, are good for our sense of uh, well-being and more generally our sense of connection, our sense of community and so forth. <laughs> That's good to know. Anything to make a commute better would be wonderful. Uh, um, 
So I understand <laughs> you've done some. I understand you've done some research around um, parenthood and subjective well-being. Uh, so what's going on there? Well, it's complicated. Uh, <laughs> now. So a lot of the research when uh, we started researching uh, parenting and well-being, uh, a lot of the finding news stories were a lot about how there is a negative association between uh, being a parent and uh, well-being. Uh, and so we published the paper link, uh, you know, sort of triangulating on three different types of met methodologies. One of them was ESM, experience sampling um, methodology, and we found that parents uh, felt, felt happier um, when they were with their children than uh, when they were not with their children. Um, now, an earlier study, for example, a Kahneman study uh, that kind of made the news uh, that parenting is bad for well-being, um, did uh, find that parenting kind of ranks, I can't remember what it was, but maybe eighth uh, or ninth in terms of well-being on your um, list of, of activities that you could be enjoying. But it's worth pointing out that the activities that rank before parenting are relatively infrequent activities. So number one was intimations, which basically means, you know, sex. Uh, and, you know, having uh, a date or dinner with friends and that sort of thing. Now, of course, these might be more pleasant and be more associated with positive emotions. Uh, but on average, when you combine all the activities that people do um, on a daily basis, we found that um, being with your children is actually, um, you know, a happier time than the rest of your day. Um, now, we also looked at a nationally representative uh, sample uh, from uh, the uh, World Values Survey um, and another data set. And so all these three data sets, we found positive associations between being a parent or spending time with your children and uh, well-being. Now, um, of course, going against some of the previous findings, uh, we got a lot of uh, sort of um, people that didn't believe our findings. Now, in some sense, who cares what people believe, right? I mean, you know, look at the data. <laughs> We're showing you the data. We don't care about your opinion. Uh, and so, uh, but I think there were some interesting sort of um, discussions around, um, you know, why didn't we control for everything else and things like that. Um, but the um, sort of ultimate answer here is that uh, if different studies find these different associations between being a parent and happiness, um, it's probably because the answer is it depends. So uh, is a, uh, you know, is a average parent happier than an average non-parent? I mean, perhaps, but in some ways that's not the interesting question, right? Um, what you need to start looking at is, well, who are those parents? Like, um, you know, are they, um, you know, um, what about uh, a teenage mom versus somebody who, you know, has, um, you know, a plentiful income, for example, to provide for their children and, and that sort of thing. Uh, there's also the issue of gender, right? So 
fathers in general, the research suggests that to be happier uh, uh, when they're parents than mothers. And that's perhaps because of, uh, you know, the role of mothers in upbringing is uh, often to actually, you know, do the hard part of, uh, of raising children, although fathers have recently uh, stepped in. Um, so anyway, so again, much like with smartphones, the net effect uh, question becomes very, becomes uninteresting when you start uh, looking at um, the fact that there's all these factors that modulate or moderate the effect. Um, and so some parents would be happier than non-parents and others will not. I feel like, I mean, I don't have any children, but when it, it's parenthood and just having a family is just a completely set of different life experiences. And sure, you can live a very, very good life in this landscape of experience. But I, I don't know. I think that as human beings, we really want to try and have uh, not only good experience, but like a diverse set of experiences. So I think there's something to be said for just going out and, and having those, those new novel experiences. And I would say, you know, parenthood won't be one of those, be one of those things and something that from what I've heard can be incredibly rewarding. And you know, it's, it's easy to see why. I do want to just bounce back to uh, smartphones for a moment because there's a question that I forgot to, to ask and I think it's an important one and I think our listeners would, would really appreciate it. And it's how could we use technology in such a way to, uh, I guess, improve our subjective well-being? I understand that you've done work on batching smartphone notifications and, you know, and checking email and all that sort of stuff. So can you talk to me about uh, some of that work? Uh, sure. Yeah. So we've done a number of studies looking at ways to reduce sort of the negative distracting effect of our smartphones so that we can reap more of the positive, uh, making our lives easier uh, benefits of these devices. Uh, so an earlier study uh, we ran, uh, we focused on students um, and we uh, manipulated so for one week, uh, we assigned them to turn their phones on do not disturb uh, settings, um, meaning they didn't get any notifications uh, for one week. And for a second week, we asked them to, you know, have their notifications on so that they can hear when they come in and to have their phones just generally nearby. Um, so that we can maximize that distraction. So we really tried to, you know, sort of maximize the difference between the two conditions. Now, these were the same subjects. So we're comparing the same people when they're on do not disturb versus, um, you know, what is um, business as usual uh, for most people. So notifications on. And, you know, we administered a number of different uh, measures, but one of the measures we administered was actually questionnaire uh, or self-rated questionnaire about symptoms of uh, ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Now, um, what we found was that in the week when people were uh, on do not disturb setting, they rated themselves lower uh, in terms of those symptoms, meaning that they were less inattentive uh, and 
uh, less hyperactive, and accordingly, they were more attentive and more, uh, I'm sorry, more inattentive and more hyperactive when um, they had their notification. Now, I should say here that, you know, these people were not, you know, they were sort of a general population of students, so they were not all diagnosed with ADHD. Uh, but it seems like what this study is suggesting is that uh, the fact that our environment in the past, you know, 11, 12 years uh, has been uh, increasingly saturated by distractions and notifications uh, more and more people uh, might be inching towards, you know, the clinically significant threshold of uh, being inattentive and uh, hyperactive. Now, and by clinically significant, do you mean to that? Note it, to know that. By by clinically uh, significant, do you mean that if they were to be placed in, uh, if they were to be interviewed by a psychiatrist about like to see if they have ADHD, they could actually be diagnosed with it when they might, when they might actually not have it? Yes, I mean it depends here. So uh, here's so so first of all, when um, you know you go to get uh, assessed for uh, ADHD, there's a couple of things that happen. So there are um, the self-reported measures about how you uh, feel uh, and how inattentive and hyperactive you are in your daily life, but there are also these uh, tasks-based measures, so where you're asked to do a cognitive task uh, to maintain your attention on a computer uh, with a very boring task, that sort of thing. Um, and so, but interestingly, these tasks uh, are typically administered in a very controlled uh, lab environment, meaning there are no distractions, there's nobody else in the room, you're you and uh, uh, the computer. So that does not necessarily reflect, um, you know, how people, uh, how inattentive or hyperactive people are in their um, uh, daily lives. Um, and so one argument here is that phones might just be making us more hyperactive and inattentive uh, in daily life. Uh, but not be um, not be messing with the underlying causing underlying cognitive impairments. Um, though there is a 2009 study um, uh, in science that uh, actually showed surprisingly that frequent multitaskers, so people who switch between tasks more actually are worse at measures of attention uh, and worse at multitasking than <laughs> people who are, you know, tend to maintain attention on one task. Now, from a cognitive psychology perspective, why might, might that be? Uh, well, it turns out if you're a frequent multitasker, you're basically, you know, all the time, you're not maintaining your attention, you're not training your attention to, um, to focus on one thing. So you're actually, you know, if you think of attention as a muscle that you can train, uh, you're basically not training that muscle. And so, but multitasking actually requires being able to very precisely control where attention is directed. Uh, and so people who can actually maintain um, their intention for a long time on the task and don't frequently task uh, might be uh, better um, at multitasking when they uh, need to do it. Um, and so uh, this, this perspective would suggest that 
to the extent phones are increasing multitasking because I'm doing one thing and all of a sudden a friend texts me and I'm responding to them. Um, you know, the fact that we're, that I'm not training my attention to not be swayed away by that notification, uh, might actually produce difference in those, um, in those, um, more structured cognitive tasks that are used to evaluate, um, ADHD. Mm. And that's, that's one of the reasons why you looked into batching smartphone notifications. Uh, is that correct? That's right. So now, um, I mean, first of all, the premise here was that, so, uh, the do not disturb, um, setting for a week. I mean, first of all, I should say not all participants follow the instructions exactly because it's a very difficult thing to do uh, when, you know, people expect you to respond and you don't know um, that they, um, they've texted you, for example. Uh, and so it just seems sort of like essentially throwing the baby with the bathwater by, you know, completely getting rid of notifications. Um, and so uh, we designed a study um, with Dan Ariely and Nick Fitz and a group of um, uh, tech company researchers. Uh, we designed a study where we actually programmed an app uh, on Android to be able to batch notifications in different um in different frequencies. And so we essentially had four conditions in that study. Um, and one condition was uh, basically no notifications the whole day. Now, I should point out here that people, just like with the not disturb, could still see if somebody sent them a message. They would just never get the notification, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Don't know when it arrived uh, or that it has arrived until they go and open the app. Anyway, so that's one condition. Uh, now, two of the conditions were uh, batching conditions. So batching means that all the notifications that are received in a certain period are delivered together. Uh, and so uh, what that means um, is that, um, you know, so, so the two conditions were three times a day, which means that there were three batches. Uh, 11 a.m. at 5 p.m. and 9 p.m., something like that. So three times a day. And there was actually a batch condition that was once an hour. So at the end of the hour, you got all the notifications that you got in the... Uh, and, you know, the forward condition was control. So, you know, again, business as usual, you get your notifications as they come in. Um, now, interestingly, what we found was that, first of all, there were not really any differences between the um, regular control condition uh, and batching notifications once an hour. So that might be a little bit too frequent uh, of batching. So, you know, if you get distracted by your phone every hour, uh, you still end up feeling uh, more inattentive, more stressed, uh, less happy, and so forth. Um, but the condition that really showed the biggest improvement in terms of well-being, uh, attention, lower stress, uh, greater perceived productivity, so feeling like uh, batching three times a day. So it seems like there is this middle way where, you know, you still get your notifications, uh, but they just don't arrive at a random 
sort of order, distracting you whenever. Uh, and the fact that they are batched in such a way that you know when they'll arrive, you can almost deal with them piecemeal, right? You can do your work, and then at 5 p.m., you know you get all your notifications and you can respond to everybody and that sort of thing. Um, now, interestingly, uh, the uh, condition where people got no notifications, uh, in that conditions, we didn't find such uh, improvements on uh, happiness um, uh, as with the batching three times a day. Uh, and part of the reason there was that there was this increased FOMO or fear of missing out. Uh, and it seemed like this fear of missing out actually caused um, you know, people to feel more anxious, uh, which makes sense, right? You just feel like you might be missing out on important things. Maybe somebody important texted you, maybe your boss texted you, and you don't know. Uh, and in fact, uh, we didn't really uh, um, measure that or quantify that, but it's possible that when you ask people not to receive notifications, they actually self-interrupt more frequently. So they, you know, you don't know if you got in there, so you go and like check your phone uh, more frequently. Um, and so it seems like this idea of batching is, is a really promising idea to kind of keep the baby, uh, but throw away the, the bath water. <laughs> All righty. So... That's uh, that's very good to know. Um, so batching three times a or th every three hours. That's that sounds uh, well definitely doable. And I've I've found that I've uh, when I'm on do not disturb because I'm not getting any of the notifications. I find myself as you said more drawn to to checking the phone itself. And I may be checking it you know once every half an hour or whatever. I I, I see myself like you know glance at the phone or look at where I think I've, I've placed it. There's like this calling in a way. It's it's quite a it's quite disconcerting. You know, the, these these devices really have quite a strong pull on us. And you know, it's for obvious reasons they're like you know a portal to just this an infinite bounty of of information and entertainment and and you know connection. So yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, so batching. You know, I mean, there's nothing magical to be clear about three times a day, you know, maybe four times a day would work better. Who knows? Uh, we yeah. didn't check that. But yeah. the point yeah, is, yeah. you know, a few times a day, you do, you know, and, and it's important to note here that, you know, all my studies, uh, you know, we're looking at average effects um, between groups, right? And so it's important to emphasize here that there's no magical number that works for everybody. Um, now, I remember people interviewing me for a study on email notifications that I did um, earlier in my career, and lots of journalists <laughs> pointed out that it is not really an option for them to check their email three times a day because uh, uh, their job requires it to check it much more often. Um, and so it is important to know that the ideal number of uh, times you check your phone or batch your notifications um, in uh, would be uh, would vary person by person. So there's no magical number. Of course, of course. Um, so I'd like to move on to um, money and well-being, money and happiness, something that uh, mm -hmm. society seems to be uh, historically overwhelmingly uh, interested in. And it seems to, from, from what I've learned uh, looking at your work, uh, seems to be rather important. So uh, what is the relationship between 
money or income and subjective well-being? Yes. So generally money is good. Money is good for well-being. Um, but it is less good perhaps than, uh, people, uh, expect. Now, when we talk about the relation between, uh, income and happiness, we really need to start talking about, um, the different components of subjective well-being that we, uh, talked about earlier. Uh, as you remember, those were positive emotions, negative emotions, and life satisfaction. So more the cognitive components. Now, it turns out that in general, uh, um, especially in those, again, large representative surveys like, um, you know, Gallup or World Value Survey and so forth, where people are asked how satisfied uh, they are with their lives. Um, there is basically a, uh, you know, the more money, the, the higher income you have, the higher your life satisfaction is. Now that makes sense. As I said earlier, um, you know, when you're judging your life, when you're asked how satisfied you are with your life or asked like, would you change anything about your life? If you uh, can, um, live it over, uh, those sorts of questions. And you look around and, you know, you live in an amazing house and, you know, drive a wonderful car and can afford food and all these things. Um, you know, you generally say that, yeah, I guess I'm pretty satisfied with my life. Um, but it turns out that when it comes to positive emotions on a daily basis, so how much, for example, you smile or laugh, um, in a particular day, or how happy you feel, again, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, for example, um, uh, then the relationship between money and happiness becomes uh, a little bit more complicated. Um, and in general, uh, a lot of research has um, concluded that there is um, this sort of curvilinear relationship, uh, which basically means that um, having higher income matters a lot uh, if you're poor. So going from, uh, you know, in the U.S. from, let's say, you know, 10000 a year to 20000 a year does tend to make people experience more positive emotions on a daily life now, uh, in their daily life. Now you can see why that might be because, you know, uh, 10,000 a year might not be enough to, um, you know, get you enough food even to eat or place to, to stay. Um, and you know, 2010 study on Kahneman um, and Deaton study um, sort of concluded that the curve really flattens around 75,000 household income. Now, this you know this made a lot of news uh, at the time. Now, I want to emphasize again that there's nothing magical about 75,000. The underlying idea is that once you uh, have enough income to meet your basic needs um, and maybe a little bit more than your basic needs. Um, so, you know, having enough food, having shelter, um, having, you know, at least some free leisure time, uh, having um, enough money to be able to go out with friends any once in a, uh, every once in a while um, um, is, is important for your daily happiness. But once you have enough, uh, getting more doesn't really... Uh, change um, your will, um, sort of daily experience positive emotions uh, all that much. 
Now, in my own research, um, we actually looked at um, um, a data set that actually had ESM data, nationally representative ESM data, meaning that people were uh, asked uh, about um, you know, how they felt during three different episodes um, of their previous day. So it was measuring happiness, not over an entire day, but during specific activities. And interestingly, in that particular, and that, that was a representative sample of the U.S. Um, from the American Time News Survey. And what we found uh, there, interestingly, so the question about happiness, how happy you felt, there was a zero uh, relationship between having more income and, and you know, being happier. Now, that seems a little weird perhaps, uh, but it has actually been replicated. Uh, we replicated that with a, a similar uh, data set in Germany. Um, and we recently uh, replicated it um, again with, with uh, a new data set. Uh, so it seems that finding actually uh, seems to stand. Now, why that might be, uh, we're not sure. Maybe it's because, you know, having more money is actually in and of itself associated with more stress uh, in other ways. So it doesn't contribute to your happiness all that much. Um, um, now... What about uh, hedonic adaptation? Is that, is, that, is that the right term for it? Where you just adapt, you know, you, you, I said uh, hedonic adaptation. Is that, is, I can't remember if that's the right term for it, but you just adapt to your new circumstances quite right. That's Yeah, that's a really good point. So hedonic adaptation would be another explanation for this. So this is the idea that, yes, uh, you know, going from 20 to 30,000 uh, makes you, uh, makes you happier for maybe a month, maybe a two, maybe a three month uh, period. But eventually you kind of just do that and then start looking at making 40,000. Uh, there's also the effect of social comparison, uh, in particular upward social comparison. Uh, so um, looking at how much your neighbors are making. So uh, when you start making your more money, being able to afford uh, perhaps better housing, you move to areas with, um, you know, where other people are uh, generally also making more money. So all of a sudden, um, you might um, still feel poorer. Um, now, uh, what we did find, though, interestingly, in, in, that, in both of those data sets, the Ger Germany and the uh, United States data sets, is that uh, having more income was related to lower uh, sadness on a daily basis. So it's kind of like this distinction. It's, it's sort of a weird finding because often people think of happiness as sadness as sort of the uh, two uh, opposite um, ends of the same continuum. But that's not necessarily the case, right? Like happiness and sadness are negatively related. You know, happy people would be generally less sad. Uh, but they're independent um, uh, or, you know, unique emotions, right? I mean, you can think of many situations where people have these mixed emotions, both happiness and sadness, right? So anyway, mm -hmm. so we find that 
for whatever reason. Um, so maybe more income actually is not so much makes you happier on a daily basis, uh, but it seems to protect you against negative emotions such as sadness. Now, I should I should make it clear here that you know this is the representative data set, so there's very limited number of uh, items being uh, people are asked about. Uh, and so, you know, perhaps we'll find the same findings for other negative emotions, but those are the emotions that were measured, happiness and sadness. And so higher income, lower sadness. Um, so I understand you did some uh, research uh, looking into uh, progressive, uh, pro progressive taxation and how it relates to happiness. Uh, could you talk to me uh, a bit about that and income inequality? Yes. Um, so uh, in that research, um, we um, looked at, uh, again, the United States. Um, and it turns out that uh, between uh, 1962 and 2014 uh, in the United States, the rate of progressive taxation in the country just changed multiple times. Uh, both uh, went up and went um, uh, down. And so this kind of provides uh, us with this time period where we can uh, study whether these changes in the progressive taxation uh, rate um, had an effect on uh, people's uh, well-being on average. Now, um, I should define here that progressive taxation basically means, uh, so we're all on the same page, uh, it means that the richer are um, taxed higher rate than those who make less money. Um, and so, you know, think Sweden type of thing. Uh, and the more you make, the more you pay in taxes. So it's not only the rich exactly. people, but it's like the richer you get, the rich, the, the more and more you have to pay up until who knows what, like the, the ceiling. I think, I think from memory, um, it was as high as 70% or maybe even higher in the US last century? Yes. Yeah. So the, it went up to, um, to up to 70% uh, at one point um, from as low as, I don't know, 12% maybe. Um, can But yeah, pretty, pretty low. So yeah, so about... Yeah, ten percent to seventy percent. So um, wow, really? A a, yeah. So I mean, you know. So I think, uh, um, yeah. So after the Reagan years, seemed to have been pretty low in the sort of seventies and early eighties. It was pretty high. Um, anyway, so that is. Um, you know, the, the, the data set we work with. Now, uh, what we then did is there's also, turns out, uh, nationally representative data for the United States uh, for, uh, well, actually, it's from 1972, uh, a little shorter period, to 2014. Um, and, you know, they're basically asked uh, how happy they feel. Uh, and it's a very limited uh, scale. So it's, uh, I think, not very happy, 
uh, pretty happy and very happy. Uh, um, and so with this uh, limited scale, uh, which, you know, when you have a limited scale, you'd expect the effects to be smaller than if you use uh, an actual real validated um, scale. Um, we did find a relationship between progressive taxation and um, the well-being of the nation. And in particular, what we did was we were able to um, look um, with time-lagged analyses, uh, essentially look at what happens to happiness um, up to five years after the progressive taxation rate changes, right? So are there, is it, so if the progressive taxation rate goes up, does happiness also go up or does it go down and uh, the other way around? Uh, and we did actually find um, that... Um, uh, and, and we actually looked at uh, income inequality in that context as well. Um, so uh, finding that uh, higher progressive taxation predicted increasingly lower income inequality up to five years later. So, and of course, that makes sense, right? If you are taxing the richer more um, and taxing the poorer less, uh, then income inequality should go down. And that's exactly what happens. Um, now, what we uh, found is that on average, uh, higher progressive taxation was actually um, associated with, on average, the nation being happier. Um, um, so, but the uh, but interestingly, when we broke it down by the in income distribution, uh, what we found was that the lowest forty percent of the income distribution, meaning the poorest forty percent of uh, Americans, uh, tended to be uh, happier. Uh, when in years of higher precipitation, whereas the richest 20% uh, were actually not less happy or significantly less happy. So they're taxed more, but they are not less happy. Now, of course, when we think about this finding in retrospect, that makes a lot of sense, right? So, I mean, if you're rich and have all these resources, being taxed a lot, I mean, may maybe it makes you a little... Uh, you know, annoyed and that sort of thing. But really, your life isn't on a daily basis <laughs> much worse than before, right? Um, you can still afford great things and expensive wines and whatever. Um, and whereas, of course, you're in the bottom 40%, um, you know, um, being tax, uh, taxed less uh, can actually have a real impact on uh, your daily life and uh, on your happiness. Uh, and finally, we found that this effect on progressive taxation was actually uh, explained in large uh, on, uh, this uh, effect of progressive taxation on happiness was explained by a large part by uh, the effect of progressive taxation on income inequality. So in other words, to the extent that progressive taxation decreased income inequality, uh, people felt happier. And in particular, you know, the lowest 40%. Now the middle uh, 40% um, uh, of the population, so, you know, those making median income and a little bit higher, um, there was no effect for them of progressivization, which I guess kind of makes sense uh, as well. Now, interestingly, uh, we, in a separate sample with 
you know, a modern sample from 2016. Uh, we actually asked people to predict how, um, you know, the richest 20% and the poorest 20% of Americans would feel under these progressive taxation um, schemes, right? Like 70% down to 10%. Uh, and it turns out that, as you can expect, people did predict that the poorer would feel happier um, under when they're taxed less and the richer tax more. Um, but interestingly, they also expected that the richer, uh, you know, the top 20 percent um, of the richest Americans uh, would feel less happy when they tax more. But again, that's not what we uh, fine. So there's no effect on the richer, uh, but there is an effect. Um, so overall, the net effect here seems to be positive. And going off what, uh, how we began our conversation, not only is it nice, to, well, it's obviously nice to have a, a happier population, but uh, a happy population is a more productive population. Um, that's right. So the, um, yeah, there's, um, lots of research, uh, now, uh, showing that, um, you know, happier, uh, people, uh, in general, but in particular in, uh, organizations are, uh, actually, uh, yeah, more productive and not just more productive, but they're less likely, for example, to quit their jobs, which actually costs a lot of money for retraining uh, and that sort of thing for companies. Um, there is um, uh, evidence for that happier workers, for example, are less likely to, I think the word is shirking, maybe, am I mixing this up? But basically, of, you know, uh, pretending to be sick, uh, <laughs> and not going to work, um, uh, and so forth. So yes. And, you know, a lot of this research I should say is correlational, uh, but there is some causal evidence from longitudinal research, uh, which allows us to look at, you know, the effects of being happy earlier to, um, you know, being more productive later, uh, excluding the possibility that being more productive makes you happier. Um, um, so I understand that, uh, a number of countries are trying to, well, we generally measure, uh, how well a country is performing by GDP. And that has over the years attracted a lot of ire and well, it's just a bit silly when you, when you, when you think about it. Uh, and some other countries are looking to uh, looking at other measures of uh, a country's success. Um, I think Bhutan measures happiness, and New Zealand has recently just announced uh, a well-being budget. Um, do you know much about um, New Zealand's uh, well-being budget, and and I guess more broadly these these movements towards uh, measuring or organizing society through well-being? And if you if you are familiar with some of it, could you? Uh, Give me your thoughts on, on, on that, I guess, movement. 
Yeah, sure. So, uh, so before becoming an assistant professor at Georgetown, um, I was a postdoc at University of Virginia, where I worked with uh, Ed Diener, um, who is uh, really uh, who really kind of started this movement uh, of well-being research uh, in the '80s, um, and you know, because psychology in the um, you know. Uh, 80s and uh, 70s and, and back uh, was really focused on all these negative things, you know, how obedient to people and conformity and mental illness uh, only, uh, sort of ignoring the good uh, side of, of um, human nature. Uh, and Ed actually um, is, a, I think, a senior scientist at... Um, at Gallup, so he's really uh, been working hard, uh, amongst others as well, uh, to promote this idea that we should be assessing, um, um, you know, the prosperity of nations, uh, not just by GDP, but but also by um, all these other more subjective measures of well-being. So, are people actually happier? Are they more satisfied? Uh, but also um, uh, there is, um, you know, this idea of uh, focusing on other objective indices. So, does everybody have access to healthcare, for example? What about good education uh, and so forth? So, all these sort of social goods um, that um, you know we can all pretty much agree make for a prosperous society. Um, and uh, you know, a number of indices have. Uh, Emerged that um, now can rank countries by those uh, indices, um, and there is a lot of um, sort of survey and representative surveys now that actually assess you know how happy people feel. So the the data is there. So there's nothing stopping us from moving away from this very narrow economic view of prosperity. I mean, GDP in particular is like, I mean, you know, you could, as, as it's happening All in the United States, all you need to do States, is right, look at the US. Talk about the 1%, pardon me? All you need to do is look at the US. I spent a lot of time there over the past few years and it does not, like there's a feeling in many of this. I, I've been, you know, Seattle, Los Angeles, like basically all the corners, like, you know, Vermont, uh, Florida, and there's just a bit of a, a feeling of, of discontent uh, in, in the air. And even though it's, you know, one of the, it's got the highest GDP in the world, right? Um, that does not map onto uh, the well-being of a nation. And you can just feel it. And I know that by other measures, uh, like we, the feeling's there, but if you look at all, the, all sorts of measures from, well, health, educational outcomes, uh, all these things, it's, the U.S. just doesn't, it's just not performing. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, um, <clears throat> really, I mean, the, the extent of the income inequality, it's, it's, you know, it has been going, um, you know, steadily towards more, uh, inequality. Um, but, you know, for example, you know, 20% of us households, so those top 20% of, uh, uh, income earners that we talked about with progressive taxation own in the United States uh, 84% of the wealth. Um, 
Uh, so, um, you know, and, and people have an awareness of this issue, but they underestimate it. So, for example, the average American believes that the richest fifth of Americans own about 60% um, of the wealth, um, but actually it's, uh, it's 84%, right? And, uh, I mean, strikingly, that bottom 40%, again, that we talked about in uh, progressive taxation, uh, combined, so the, the wealth that they own uh, combined is a paltry 0.3%, so less than 1% of the wealth. I mean, that is crazy, right? Wow. Um, so um, it's, yeah, it's bad. <laughs> yeah, and I can, we, spent, we use money as a way of, uh, you know, signaling. I, I see money as, as water or energy, and each of us, we use it in a way that we think is going to be beneficial, not only for us, but, you know, uh, in, in general. And I think by concentrating that in the hands of so few, we're actually doing a disservice to, to everyone because our perspectives and how we think we should spend our money, um, I think, is uh, a lot more valuable than we, when we, than we give credit to. I, I mean, for instance, what I would love uh, is if... So a percentage of our income goes towards... Uh, the arts, you know, so we, we, we pay taxes and a percentage of that goes towards the arts and goes towards supporting artists and musicians and yada, yada, yada. So the governments, the governments are, they've got this challenge of trying to allocate that money in such a way to, in this, in the, in, in this uh, specifically related to the arts, in such a way that ideally promotes artistic expression and uh, makes as many people in the country uh, as happy as possible, I guess, with regards to, to that, uh, to the arts. So instead of giving the government mm -hmm. that right, or instead of giving them all of that power, it would make a lot more sense to at least distribute a portion of that, of that buying power back to the citizens where they could then give money to the artists and the musicians and the creators that they actually support, that, that they actually want to support and that, that, that they want to, you know, support the work of because the government just, it's, they can't calculate or they don't know the preferences of each of their people of, of, of their citizens. And it's just like, it's informationally just, or, you know, epistemically, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, well, shit for lack of a better term. Um, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. so, yes. <laughs> it's, 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 it's quite frustrating. It's, it's quite frustrating. Um, so we were just talking about uh, income inequality. Um, I'd like to move um, towards a term that's, I, I, that's, I guess, related to um, well-being, but might be qualitatively different, and that's living a psychologically rich life. Oh, okay. So what is a psychologically rich life? And how does it differ to well-being? Well, so so we've talked a lot about sure, yeah. So we've talked a lot about um, you know the happy life. Um, now, uh, what we haven't 
really touched upon is uh, what um, you know some um, uh, people would call the meaningful life. But um, you know, if we think about ancient uh, Greek philosophers, you know, they distinguished between you know hedonia and eudaimonia. Now, hedonic well-being means. Uh, sort of, um, you know, enjoying a really nice food, so enjoying life, feeling more joy and that sort of thing. Eudaimonic well-being is more about, uh, you know, meaning, uh, self-actualization, you know, achieving your highest potential, being a contributing member uh, of society. Now, uh, people have distinguished between these two things as if they are two opposite things. You can either you know, live a life of pleasure or a life of meaning. Uh, in reality, uh, the data suggests that those two things are very closely associated. Uh, so when people are, um, you know, leading more meaningful and purposeful lives, they tend to be happier, more joyful, um, uh, and so forth. But it turns out that uh, when people are in a better mood, uh, they actually tend to rate their lives as more meaningful. So it seems like there's this uh, uh, two-way street here. So actually enjoying uh, some small pleasures of life might actually be good for your meaning as well. Now, that's the reason why I'm telling you this is because these, um, you know, the meaningful and happy life uh, has really been the focus of the literature for years and years. Now, with uh, Shigehiro Oishi, uh, and his large team of uh, researchers um, at the University of Virginia, we started wondering whether um, these two things, uh, the happy life and the meaningful eudaimonic life, um, might actually be missing something. Uh, and it seemed to us um, that there is this third possibility um, for, um, you know, a psychologically rich life, which, again, would be associated positively with the uh, happy life uh, and meaningful life, but would be still distinct from them. And the idea here, I mean, in some ways, you can think of the psychologically rich life uh, as the interesting life. So um, you are not necessarily uh, seeking... Uh, you know, purpose, you know, you're not focusing on, I don't know, changing the world, for example. Um, but you're focusing on, I don't know, traveling a lot or, you know, reading really deep uh, poetry and um, uh, or just reading, you know, all kinds of books, for example. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, as you know, for example, am from, or maybe you don't know, but I'm from Bulgaria originally. I grew up in Bulgaria. You know, I moved to the United States uh, for college. Um, a year later, I went to England. I spent a summer working in Greece. So I've lived all over the place. Um, you know, I moved to Canada for my PhD. And I mean, all this moving, um, you know, I mean, I'm a generally happy person, but I would say the thing that moved me through all of these things is the desire to experience something new, something interesting, something novel. It's not the desire to find happiness or find meaning necessarily, right? It is this desire to, for novelty, uh, in a sense, um, and 
you know, it's, it's, worth, um, it's worth pointing out that in actuality, when you move, uh, I mean, eventually I've been happy in all these places, but at first, I mean, first of all, you know, all your friends from the previous place are, you know, boof, disappeared, right? I mean, there's social media yeah. and phones, but really it's not the same. So it's challenging. You know, you go through uh, periods of, you know, feeling frustrated, uh, feeling a little alone, not experiencing as many positive emotions. But in the end of the day, what this results in is perhaps a more interesting um, or psychologically rich life. The idea being that you're not aiming for positive emotions, you're just aiming for experiencing, you know, the full range of, of emotions, whether they're positive uh, or negative. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And it makes me think that there could be a... Re- like the way... Intuitively, the way psychologically rich life links to, I guess, meaning uh, more so than happiness is that through the experiencing of novel things, you're like, what is novelty? It's like, it's rooted in information that is, that is unique that you haven't come across before. Um, and when you come across infam- when you come across anything that you haven't encountered before, uh, uh, it could be whatever you're coming across could be potentially useful. So this by by experiencing novelty, what, what we're actually doing is is uh, is identifying, or we, we have the potential to identify things, whatever they could be, uh, you know, ways of being, or books, or you know, ideas mm-hmm. that could be potentially uh, useful. And by useful, I mean um, being able to be put that that information or that that knowledge. Or the experiences could be put towards meaningful endeavors. Uh, so it's kind of like a is the psychologically rich life is is it's a way or endeavoring towards that is a way of uh, increasing the arsenal of, of potentially useful um, things mm-hmm. to um, live a more meaningful life. Yeah, exactly. And you know, in many se- uh, in in. You know, in many uh, senses, uh, that's probably not the right expression, but uh, the, um, uh, you know, when you are experiencing more novelty, experiencing all these new things, I mean, you're in some sense increasing the chances, uh, perhaps, that you might find your calling, uh, right? Yeah, and a meaningful life, really, a eudaimonic life, is really fundamentally about you know, what's your calling? What's your purpose on this earth, right? And so um, I think, you know, uh, but that said, again, it's, uh, it's not necessarily the same thing because you can also argue that, you know, um, let's say, you know, 200 years ago when people couldn't travel wherever in the world and they were essentially spend their entire life in their little village. Um, I mean, you could, totally have a very, very meaningful life. You know, you have your role as, you know, whoever in that village. Um, and, you know, that's your role. That's your calling. You know, in some sense, um, today we have so much choice in terms of figuring out what our calling is. Uh, that that might result in you know never being sure what you're calling us, right? Um, well, the problem is... is so, like- but I do agree that... The, there's like the chances are there is another like there is another path that could provide greater amounts of if we were to quantify flourishing or happiness like if given that we have next to a, 
you know, what, what seems like an infinite amount of potential lives that we could live, the chances are that the life that we are living is not the best one. And I, I, I see this as a bit of a problem with, um, I guess, generations alive, uh, you know, like the, let's say the millennials and Gen Z uh, more specifically because the internet and like, I don't know, the world's just, uh, I think like the table's been flipped and we're, we're beginning to realize that um, we can, we, we have such tremendous freedom to carve out a life that uh, we, to carve out lives that we may not have been able to live, uh, you know, just a few decades ago. And with that amount of freedom comes a bit of angst because, no, uh, what's it's the paradox of choice. If if we can, if we've got mm-hmm. such a amount of things to choose from, like that, that brings about some negative uh, emotion in in of itself because you just think that you're missing out. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, it, you know, I agree uh, that you brought up the paradox of choice. Uh, you know, and as you know, there's a lot of research on this, uh, basically showing that when you have a lot of choice. Uh, you actually uh, might end up liking whatever you choose uh, less than if you, you know, had a little bit of choice. I mean, choice is good. Uh, so being able to choose between two options, that's great. But having to decide between, you know, 10 options, you know, you always wonder, oh my God, maybe this other thing would be better. Um, and, you know, there's lots of research that uh, in terms of how much people like consumer products to, you know, jams uh, uh, yeah. uh, by the store. And so, but if we apply this uh, reasoning to, you know, find finding your calling, uh, yes, if you basically have an infinite amount of things you can do with your life and you, you know, kind of, oh, should I go this way? Should I go that way? Uh, well, that might actually decrease your chances of finding your calling uh, because your calling, I mean, what, you know, how can we define this, right? Like we often think of it as something, I mean, it just clicks, right? But for it to click, I guess we have to be, sh- you know, what we mean is like, we need to be sure that that's how calling, but with so much choice, it might be more difficult um, to to discover that. Now, from that perspective, I would say that this search for novelty, um, you know, the psychologically rich life, might actually, in some cases, decrease <laughs> the chances of finding a meaningful life. Right? Because in a lot of sense, a meaningful life is potentially a very boring life. It's just Focusing on one thing, you know, uh, making a change in the world or contributing to something beyond yourself. Um, you know, in parenting, for example, we talked about earlier, uh, the research actually suggests very clearly, there's no debate about that, parents find their lives more meaningful than non-parents. So having children, definitely very good for purposeful and meaningful life. Uh, and it's because, you know, you do have a purpose. You have to raise a human being. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, you know, there's not, you know, once you have a child, you don't have too much choice uh, around whether, um, <laughs> you know, you can do that or not, right? And so it, it kind of becomes your calling naturally. And so, um, so in some ways, but, you know, parents, you know, notoriously, uh, I guess, <laughs> don't have necessarily very interesting lives because, you know, it's very structured. You go to work, you pick up your kids, you know. Um, but yeah, so in some ways, I, I think there is some overlap between a psychologically rich and meaningful life, but they're definitely distinct things. It could go either way. 
Yeah, yeah. My point was more the psychologically rich life can help one live a more meaningful life just by by virtue of contributing to the the arsenal of, of information at our disposal and like an understanding of the ways in which we can be in the world. Um, this makes me think I see, of I see, I see. So yeah, yeah. So it's like a toolbox that you have. Yes. Yeah, and and just like being, mm-hmm. I, I see this as a, a like. Uh, a landscape of potential lives that we could live. So imagine that there's a, uh, a three dimensional landscape um, and each position on the landscape has a different height and where you are on that landscape is associated with different ways of being. So where I am right now, you know, let's say I'm at a, uh, on one location, I'm an artist somewhere else. I'm a, a parent. Um, and so each location mm-hmm. on this map is associated with a different life lived and the height of that, mm-hmm. uh, that the, the elevation of that, of that point, uh, is the amount of flourishing that you experience, um, living that life. So obviously, uh, each of us would have different maps. And so f- for, for myself, my map might be very, very high, uh, the, the location where I'm a, a professional podcaster and may, you know, that may be the life in which I, I experience the most amount of flourishing. So what I see the role of governments in a way is to try and increase the square mileage. So you could think of it as like the freedom of choice made available to individuals so that they can try and mm-hmm. identify where on the map, which life they could live to live the most meaningful uh, life or the most, the life that brings in the most amount of flourishing. And, you know, based on our conversation and like the thoughts I've had in the past, this is economically like this, this approach seems to be economically productive because when people live lives that are, that they deem to be flourishing or, you know, happy, they are better citizens. So it's, it's this wonderful cycle or um, this, this wonderful spiral of prosperity and just positivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think it, this, your point goes, uh, or ties really well with what we discussed earlier about the income findings where, you know, it's really clear that the uh, relationship about income and happiness is a story about, do you have enough money to, uh, you know, cover your, uh, basis, uh, you know, um, live in a safe, um, you know, secure environment, uh, be able to provide food for yourself and your family. And at that point, once you meet those needs, I think that's, I would argue, perhaps the point where, you know, you, you do become more free to choose. Otherwise, you're essentially economically you know, enslaved. Just striving to survive, maybe not get evicted. Uh, uh, maybe protecting your children from not getting shot and so forth. Um, and it's really interesting. So um, this, your point made me think of this uh, research on scarcity, uh, which is the idea that when we, um, when people have uh, scarce resources, uh, so for example, not a lot of money, Cognitively, what happens is that people become sort of hyper. Uh, hey, yep. Sorry, I just lost you. Um, I think you were saying that there's uh, the study on scarcity and how having scarce resources reduces your cognitive capacity or bandwidth. Yes, but just to be clear, it's a psychological mechanism. It's not something about oh, you know, you don't get enough nutrients or something like that. But just Basically, 
I mean, one way to think about it is if you don't have enough resources and you constantly have to think about how to survive and how you're going to make it to the next paycheck, that becomes the focus of your life, survival, the now. So, but what that hap- uh, what that the effect of that is that you fail to uh, think about the future. So, think about a, a good example of that is the predatory payday lo- loans, right? I mean, you think why would anybody, uh, you know, um, go and get this super expensive loan uh, and get themselves in the into this situation? And the answer is very simple. I mean, if you don't, if you don't have money to buy your kid food, I mean, you'll do anything in that particular moment. Of course, you know, you won't consider that in a month you'll be even in a worse situation. But um, anyway, so my point here is that uh, when you're, you you know, when you have forty percent of the people in the U.S. Uh, having zero point three percent of the wealth you have a problem uh, because these people aren't free. They are focused on one thing and that thing is not contributing to society. That thing is not finding novel experiences and that's not, uh, that thing is not, you know, pleasure and being happy. Uh, what it is, is survival. Uh, and, um, you know, it's a cycle that perpetuates uh, itself. So I do think that governments have an important role to play here uh, in, you know, raising people uh, out of poverty. This sort of individualistic Western idea of, you know, everybody on their own and work hard and everything would work out is not, does not work if you... Well, it's, an ignorant, it's, an, it's an ignorant perspective because we, to believe that we are like solely responsible for the circumstances of our lives is just completely absurd. We are not responsible for where we are born. We are not responsible for our genetic endowments, whether or not they're positive mm. or negative. We're not responsible mm-hmm. for the income of our parents uh, we are not responsible for the technologies and freedoms that we have available to us. Uh, you know, it's, and I, and to think that, um, we are entirely responsible for the income that we generate or that we don't generate <laughs> when we're not, resp- when it seems that we're not responsible for anything else is just completely absurd. Like to think that we actually have completely free will is something that's mm-hmm. called into question. And we don't need to get too philosophical about this because, you know, all we need to do is think about the, uh, you know, Brexit and uh, the Trump election and the influence um, advertising can have on our decisions, on our decision-making. Like it's, you don't need to think mm-hmm. very hard at all to, to really uh, see why the, these, these, these notions that, uh, you know, we are solely responsible for, for our actions are just like completely absurd. And it makes a lot of sense, not just from a, not just, not just from this perspective, but also from a, an, a social, from, from a societal well-being perspective to just be a little bit more caring and, and understanding because it turns out that it makes for a better society for everyone. Like, the, you know, a rising, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats. It's, uh, and, you know, I think we need to extend this line of thinking uh, globally because we do not exist as, you know, isolated islands. Like we are using technologies that the whole world has contributed to making. And, you know, the materials mm-hmm. that go into our phones are sourced globally. So it's not like we're on this, uh, where these, these little ships or these isolated nations competing against each other and trying to all grow up. We're actually interconnected in ways that we can't even understand, like that, uh, beyond our comprehension. So we should act accordingly. Sorry, I'm just, it just pisses me off. 
Yeah, yeah. So I, I have a couple of points to make too. So first of all, yeah, it's completely absurd. Um, however, I was actually just teaching my students uh, in social psychology yesterday about the, something called the fundamental attribution error. Uh, and what that means is that um, in the West, uh, Western countries, you know, more individualistic countries, what happens is that when people see a stranger act a certain way, do something bad, for example, um, people automatically attribute that behavior to, you know, dispositional personality characteristics about this person. So this person acted badly because they're a bad person. Now, you know, in more collectivistic cultures like Japan and, and China, people do tend to take the context more into consideration. You know, this person acted badly, you know, because, I don't know, they, uh, uh, you know, didn't have, they were really hungry or something or whatever, right? So they'll take the context uh, more into consideration. But but my point here is that there is this cultural bias in the West that basically makes us automatically um, attribute, you know, uh, when something bad happens to you, it's because of you uh, doing something. It's rather than taking the context into consideration. And we only take the context into consideration through effort. Uh, we have to be motivated and we have to have the cognitive resource to actually think about it. Uh, it doesn't come naturally. So that's one point. The other point is, I mean, I completely agree with you about the, um, the ridiculousness. I mean, in some ways, so here is one thing I kind of wonder more at a philosophical level, like why are, you know, why is a truck driver uh, making so much less money than, you know, a CEO. I mean, are they working less hard? Really? I mean, I'm pretty sure that a lot of the, you know, uh, the hardest workers are the lowest income earners, like people scrubbing toilets yeah, exactly. and, like and putting, picking up the rubbish, bless them, bless them. No, exactly. Yeah. And I think your point about interconnectedness is really important. I mean, you know, you know, if you don't value truck drivers or your delivery men uh, to pay them enough money, I mean, try try living a society that there are no truck drivers. Like, how are you going to get your, you know, new iPhone and stuff delivered, right? I mean, it's just completely ridiculous. But I think, you know, of course, the answer is, well, you know, more skilled workers, you know, get more money. But then I think that's where the idea of progressive taxation becomes very useful. It's like, okay, sure, like you studied a lot, uh, whatever, you're really skilled at managing an organization, sure, get some more money. But yeah, we will tax you at 70%. And we will tax the truck driver, at, you know, 0%. So that we don't have this ridiculous disparity because at the end of the day, uh, you know, the CEO cannot exist without his workers. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, like, to be honest, I don't even think like, it's not our money, like money, whatever. It's not this thing. Like money couldn't, cannot exist in isolation. I just can't exist by myself without society and then have this thing called money. You know, money is a, it requires social connection to exist. So the, the idea that we own our money, I think is completely flawed. Even the money that we generate, even the money that we generate, because it requires demand from others. It requires that, that sense of recognition. So money itself seems to be this, this resource that we, 
that we as a society allocate to people who are doing things that we deem to be socially valuable. And we, you know, it turns out that having money grants you a tremendous amount of freedom, right? And so that's the positive thing. So it's like, hey, hey, you know, thank you for doing that thing that is, is beneficial to society. Here's some money um, as a reward um, so that you can go and live a better life. You know, we, we appreciate that, but you don't get all of it because we need this, we need this money to, well, we use this to try and, you know, this is why I like the water or energy analogy because we use this, we use the money to go and as a society improve things that we think are, that, that, that we think need to be improved. So healthcare, education, um, mm-hmm. roads and all that things that are, you know, better, better for everyone. And I think we're at a point now where we need to extend this line of like, we're at a point now where we live in a global society and we need to extend this line of thinking to the entire planet, not just, uh, the nation state because, well, we live in a global society and, you know, we should act accordingly. And unfortunately we're kind of stuck in this, well, we're, we're about to go through a bit of a transformation and I don't know how, I think it could, at the end of the day, it'll be good, but I think it might get messy initially. And that's just because with mm. these nation states with big guns, whose sole role is to, you know, survive firstly, and then, you know, provide mm-hmm. for their citizens, but the providing for the citizens and maintaining human rights seems to be of an after, seems to be an afterthought. Yeah, and I mean, I would say here that, look, so, I mean, humans are, you know, a product of evolution. And so, you know, I mean, it was perhaps evolutionarily advantageous uh, in the early days to be, you know, uh, suspicious uh, of the people from the other tribe and make sure you protect your in-group the people that are around you. So there's very something very basic about human psychology that is, um, you know, that is very appealing to sort of latch on to a group. And when the economy is doing poorly or, you know, your family is doing poorly, you know, you feel insecure, the tendency is to actually latch on to, you know, we versus them, you know, it gives you a sense of meaning, um, purpose, security. Um, and so, you know, so anyway, my point is, you know, I don't know if we'll in the next, uh, few years get past that, uh, basic psychological tendency to see the world in us versus them. Um, but you know, I no, but I think what we, we what we can do is we just change we change the us versus them from countries to something else, right? So rather than it being like I'm a this citizen or I'm a that citizen, you know, it's a, I'm a supporter of Barcelona Football Club or I'm a you know we we just kind of shift the tribal uh, the, the these tribal tendencies to things that don't have such a huge let's say existential uh, potential cost. We just, we, we, or we try yeah. to leverage it in a, in a positive way. But right now I see it as, as, a, as, as rather dangerous. Yeah. And, and I think an important point here is, um, so, um, uh, Pinker, uh, in a, I think a new book or maybe it's an article basically shows, uh, that, uh, Stephen Pinker, um, shows that, uh, I mean, in general, as much as we constantly think that, you know, things are about to implode and get worse, when you look at, you know, things like the number of people that die in wars, the number of people that die of hunger in the world, the number of people 
that die um, from, you know, even violent crime in the United States, even though, you know, there's these mass shootings, which is an important issue, of course. But overall, on, on average, these numbers are all decreasing. <laughs> you know, things, I mean, hunger, world hunger has decreased by, you know, I don't know how much, but a lot in the past half century, right? So in general, things are getting better. Now, I think one thing that <laughs> might, you know, throw things off um, that we've never faced before is this idea of, well, not this idea, but uh, climate change. Yeah, right? that's, so what, that's yeah. something that, uh, you know, um, yeah. And, and, but, but I think part of what's going on is that it's politically expedient to make people feel like things are, you know, headed for disaster when the country is, uh, you know, ruled by the other team. Um, and that makes people latch on to more, more into their in-group, right? I mean, in the U.S., there is uh, some recent research that suggests that the political parties here, Republicans and Democrats, are actually behaving more like religious groups rather than political groups. Now, what that means is that, you know, it's not any longer about, um, you know, you know, exchanging arguments and disagreeing and sort of the more rational thing. It's really uh, about, um, you know, us versus them. They're the bad people. We're the, the good people, you know. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's really become about like group identity uh, rather than uh, any sort of reasonable conversation about... Um, you know, what's good for the country. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think reasonable is like, we throw this term reasonable and rational around a lot, but yeah, like, I think it's, um, we, we have a very high opinion of ourselves as, as a species. And while we have the capacity mm -hmm. to be rational, to think that we make all of our decisions rationally is just completely absurd. Um, and, you know, anyone like <laughs> yeah. I, 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 the number of times I make decisions that are best for me, uh, like definitely in the minority, you know, like there might be a glass of wine here when I really know I shouldn't even the night before a podcast that I didn't do that one. I didn't do that last night. <laughs> I was prepared for this, but you know, <laughs> or, you know, anything else. I, I actually, I've heard that, um, one of the uh, hypotheses for how rationality developed was, uh, uh, so that we could explain our actions retrospectively to other members of our social group so that we could, so it wasn't, uh, so it wasn't that we thought things through first and then acted, but it was a way for us to try and <laughs> provide some semblance of, 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 of sense behind our actions. And, uh, I don't, don't know if that makes sense, but I think that, I think that's quite funny. Yeah, no, that makes I've just yeah, heard that, that makes a yeah. lot of sense. And there's a lot of research showing that that's precisely, uh, precisely the case. So, um, Post rationalization. You know, there's a number of, there's a number, yeah, there's a number of studies uh, showing that, um, you can sort of, uh, subliminally influence people's choice, uh, of something. Uh, and, but then when they actually choose that, something that you have somehow, uh, you know, as an experimenter made them choose and you know, it's true because you can compare it to the other group, uh, people will give you 
you know, these very convincing explanations be why they chose that item versus the other item. Does that make sense? So they have no yeah, idea yeah, they yeah. under your influence, but they are very good at, you know, and, and of course, when you tell them uh, that's what, um, you know, the reason why they chose this is because you, you know, structured the situation in a particular way, um, you know, they like nobody, <laughs> nobody believes you. Right. And yeah. so, um, so that so, reminds me of a, a lecture series right. that I've, I've, I've started watching. There's this guy called John Viveki. Um, I think he's a cognitive scientist, uh, out at the university of Toronto. I, I could mm-hmm. be wrong, but he's got this, like, I've only just started, but it's this huge, um, lecture series on, well, he's titled it, uh, awakening from the meaning crisis and he talks about different types of, of knowing and you know in, in philosophy knowledge is just justified as well it's it's uh, i think to know something or truth is you know justified yeah knowledge is justified true belief but we tend to know things that we uh can't really explain rationally we tend to know things um deep down uh, that we that we might not actually believe but we just know you know like uh, an example could be I don't know. Murder is wrong, or maybe that's not the best example. But he he goes into a specific. Right. Uh, he, he, gives yeah. a, he gives a specific um, uh, example of where people were shown random strings of digits or letters, and he, they were meant to determine if they followed or that if they adhered to a particular pattern. And they'd they'd be shown a string of digits or numbers, mm-hmm. and they would say, "Yes, this is this follows the pattern," or "No, this follows the pattern." It's not specifically this, but something like that. And it turns out that the people could correctly identify these things quite mm-hmm. accurately, but they had absolutely no idea why. So they knew at like a, a cognitive uh, mm-hmm. um, subconscious level, but they couldn't uh, articulate it. So this, you know, what does it mean to oh, know? Interesting. So it's actually it's like rationality. I think rationality is. Well, I think we need to really brief. We, we need to come up with different definitions because um, we can act rationally without being able to explain why the action is is correct. Uh, I think you know. I, I think our intuitions are actually far more accurate uh, and far more uh, attuned to the maximization of order in the world than, than we give them credit for. So we say, you know, oh, people are behaving irrationally. You know, the classic yeah, and I the, think the economist uh, stuff. I was just going to say, you know, the classic homo economicus, like people behave irrationally because they spend an extra dollar on water when they could go across the road and buy it. Like, well, you know, maybe we're actually a lot more rational than we give ourselves credit for, but we just, our understanding of, of, of why of, uh, it's just, it's so limited. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I mean, I think that, um, idea of or that realization from behavioral research that, uh, our decision making is far from rational, and often the rationale comes after uh, we've made uh, a decision for another reason. Is the whole reason uh, behind behavioral economics the whole idea, right? So, moving away from this assumption in economics of uh, this rational decision maker to actually take into consideration how humans uh, actually behave. Um, I am conscious of our, of our time. So um, I, I guess we'll just, I'll just ask you some wrapping up questions though. You know, the past, past hour of the conversation has really been quite riveting. Um, so uh, what are you currently excited about at the moment in, in your line of work or in general? It doesn't have to be work. It could be, you know, a new flavor of ice cream that's just been offered at a store down the road. <laughs> <laughs> 
yes. Well, uh, in my line of work, so as I mentioned earlier, uh, a lot of my research has been focused on uh, the effects of smartphones on well-being, uh, sort of subjective well-being. Now, I am uh, more and more interested in uh, studying the effects of um, these technologies on physical health, or you can, I guess, call it physical well-being. So, um, you know, I mean, you can, on the one hand, uh, there's all these, um, you know, apps that help us track our health and exercise and stuff like this. So uh, those might be potentially good um, for health. But of course, uh, so... Um, you know, just the amount of time we spend on devices, on our devices, is staggering. So I uh, uh, run a study with uh, using um, uh, screen time on uh, the iPhone with my students, right? Screen time basically tells you objectively how much time your screen is on during the day, uh, so that you know, essentially measuring screen time objectively, and it turns out that one of the most common responses is six hours a day. Now, of course, there is a variation. I mean, but these are students, right? So their lives are super busy. Uh, but somehow, in, you know, amongst going to classes and sleeping, other things, they actually have their phones on for six hours. Now, of course, again, you know, this is perhaps a little extreme, but even if it's four hours or three hours, I mean, that's a lot of time every day to be on your phone. Now, if you're on your phone, um, perhaps, again, the idea of opportunity cost. So what else aren't you doing? I mean, in some sense, you know, at least phone when we talk about social interactions, well, phones can connect you with friends and, you, you know, perhaps your boyfriend uh, who is in a different city or whatever. But, you know, they don't help you move or exercise. So if you're spending six hours um, a day on your phone, perhaps you're not doing these other activities. So in some way, I'm almost interested in thinking about screen time as a type of health behavior, right? So, you know, the um, uh, Center for Disease Control here in the United States, for example, talks about various health behaviors, exercise, standing um, on a regular basis is one of those health behaviors. Sleeping is another one. You know, smoking is a sort of a negative uh, <clears throat> uh, health behavior. But I think screen time, especially when we think about children too, should be thought of, I think, as an actual uh, health behavior in and of itself because it's so prevalent and it's so... Um, uh, related to these other important health behaviors that we know predict, um, you know, either living a healthy, uh, long life or, you know, dying early, um, from disease. Um, so yeah. that's one thing that I'm really excited about. Uh, so, um, where can people find out more about your work online? Uh, well, I'm uh, in a lot of places online. So, 
People can find me on ResearchGate or Academia or Google Scholar, but uh, perhaps the best place to find, you know, uh, copies of all my uh, papers, uh, you know, media articles about my research and my own sort of popular uh, press articles about describing my studies. Uh, if people don't want to read my, all my papers, uh, would be my website, uh, which is my last name, uh, Kushlev, that's K-U-S-H-L-E-V, Dot com. So kushlev.com. Kush like, you know, the wheat yeah. and then left. And then the, uh, that's my website. And uh, are you on Twitter or? Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm on Twitter as well. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Kushlev. All these links will be in the... Uh, yes, at PhD uh, is okay. my uh, Twitter account. And All right. I love follower so <laughs> all righty well i'll uh all of these all the all the links to a lot of what we spoke about what we found in the show notes so i'll put that there as well uh do you have a parting message for the listeners out there anything you'd like to say before we wrap up uh well i would say uh keep enjoying the benefits that technology is bringing in our lives i'm uh um you know a firm believer believer that these devices are great and very useful. I'm actually uh, way on my newest phone right now. Uh, so keep using those devices, but just um, be aware that you might not be aware of all the ways in which um, these devices might actually um, make you miss out on opportunities to be uh, happier. That's a great parting message. Thank you very much for your time, Costa. Thank you very much for having me, Sam. All right. Well, thanks again to Kostad and Kushlev for taking the time to have a chat. If you would like to follow up on some of the things covered in today's conversation, uh, you can head to the show notes on my website at samhbarton.com and you'll be able to find links to some of the papers discussed, uh, Kostadin's personal website and his Twitter handle. If you would like to support the show, uh, please consider sharing it on social media and with your friends or by leaving it a review on iTunes. You can also become a financial supporter of the podcast by becoming a patron. You can find links to that on my website or by heading to patreon.com slash Sam H. Barton. If you would like to keep up to date with new episodes and other stuff that I've got going on, uh, either follow me on social media at Sam H. Barton or by becoming a subscriber on my website. Thank you again for listening and until next time.